The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need for the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. Eventually, you know, I, I, I told them, I'm like, I'm not here to play gotcha. I'm here to tell your stories. And if I'm not here to tell it, then maybe no one will, you know, who knows? I mean, it's a, it's a big country. It's a lot of soldiers and not a lot of journalists. And I think your story is important. Welcome everyone to season five of the Scuttlebutt. My name is Sean Hall, the director of programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club, whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. This is the first episode of season five. And if you've been with us this long, thank you so much for being a fan. And if this is your first time, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. So you're the first to know whenever new episodes are released every Monday. We also love to hear from our fans. So you can email me at Sean, that's S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Or if you are listening to this through audio format, also know that there is a YouTube version of this podcast that you could just go right on and watch. And I do recommend that for this first episode of season five because our first guest is going to be freelance photojournalist Justin Merriman. Later on in the episode, we're going to show some of the images that Justin has been able to capture in all of his travels, and he's going to talk about some of them. So I definitely recommend you coming over to YouTube and watching on there. Back to Justin. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Time, USA Today, Sports Illustrated, and publications across the globe. All of his awards are listed in his bio on his website, which we will have here in the description, along with an organization which he started called American Reportage. Uh, I definitely recommend checking him out and checking out all of the incredible photos that he has, though we only were able to get to several of them here. We'll hear a bit about his story, how he got his start here in, in Pennsylvania, and what led him to then embed with the 101st Airborne in Afghanistan, that and beyond. Um, there's a lot to get to in this episode. Joining me for this conversation will be fellow co-host Catherine Guyon. And I should mention that the Scuttlebutt was created by the Veterans Breakfast Club to help bridge the military-civilian divide uh, by taking a look and trying to understand military culture through a civilian perspective, which is which is me. I'm not a veteran. I just have a passion for veteran stories, and, uh, and so does Catherine. So I think you'll see that in the episodes to come this season. We have a lot of really great guests lined up for this whole season. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Justin Merriman. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're very excited to invite you here with us today, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Love to dive into our conversation today with Justin. Uh, Justin, I was uh, so amazed looking at your website, seeing the pictures that you have captured and reading your bio about how you got started in, uh, in, in photojournalism and really wanted you to come on so that you could tell your story for our audience and 
break down some of the pictures, and then also talk a bit about some organi an organization that you're involved in, American Reportage, which we'll get to later on in the program. Um, but to start off, Justin, uh, can you tell us a bit about how you got started? Sure. I was a student at the uh, University of Pittsburgh Greensburg, and I was studying writing, uh, primarily poetry writing and, and fiction writing. And I always had an interest in storytelling. And, you know, there was a there was a opening for the, the school's newspaper. And I thought, well, I need a credit. That sounds interesting. I joined the paper staff. And when the first meeting, they said, does anybody want to be the uh, photo editor? Hmm. Well, I, I like to be a boss. So I was like, yeah, I'll be the photo editor. Um, and a couple of the other students said, well, you you're just joining the paper. You just can't join and be the photo editor. <laughs> like, who are you? What, you know? And, you know, it worked out that I ended up becoming the photo editor. And I thought, well, this is kind of fun. I think I'm going to be a photojournalist. And I had no idea the path that you would need to take to become a photojournalist, but I had decided then and there that that's what I wanted to be. So I reached out to the local newspaper and said, hey, I'm a photojournalist here in, in Greensburg. I want to be on your staff. And the photo editor at that paper said, you know, that it's not the way it works. You don't just say, I want to be a photojournalist. You need to follow all the, you know, these, this journey and you need an education in photojournalism or a degree. So I, I, I called him every day for months to see if he had any openings. And eventually I think I just, just warmed out. And he said, listen, I'll give you a shot as a stringer photographer and you know, it's $35 for an assignment. I'll let you shoot a basketball game on your campus. And he said, do you have a, do you have a 70 to 200? And I, I had no idea what that was. So I wrote it down. I said, yeah, sure. I have that. And he says, what do you shoot Canon or Nikon? So I thought Canon wrote that down. Um, he asked me about a flash and I said, sure. I have a 540 easy flash. I wrote that down. I got in my car. I drove to a camera shop in Pittsburgh. I walked in with my list and I said, I need all these things. And I charged it on a credit card drove back to the game and I walked in and I had no idea how to even load the film in the camera. So I went up to another photographer at the game and I said, Hey, I need to load this film in this camera. Can you help me? So he loaded it in and then he told me, push it. And I thought that meant like, you know, push it. Yeah, I'll push it. I'll push it. But that was a, that's a photography term to like expose your film film in a way that can shoot in darker environments. Uh -huh. So he showed me how to do that and shot the game. And went back to the newspaper and the photo editor liked one of the photos and said, hey, you're not half bad. <laughs> and I started stringing for them. And that's kind of how I started. Um, so as a photo editor, take a step back, a photo editor for your like your school paper, that's like people bring you photos and you kind of check out and say, okay, this is the one that we're going to put in or not. Like you're, yeah. you're not necessarily editing the photo. You're just making sure that which one's going to get published. Yeah, making choices about what should run. And, and I had no idea what I was doing at the school newspaper in the beginning. And, and likewise, I had no idea what I was doing when I started stringing for this for the Greensburg newspaper. Um, but I, I was determined that I was not going to stop. So I went out every day and practiced photos and practiced how to do different exposures and different f-stops and all this stuff. Mm -hmm and would chase the scanner, you know, like a, a police scanner. And I would try to beat the staff photographers to news events. And eventually, I, you know, I, I, I was doing it to, with some success and mm -hmm. you know, making $35 an assignment. And, and it led into another part-time job at a newspaper in, in Trenum, Pennsylvania, which was an iconic newspaper that, you know, 
Eddie Adams, the famed photographer from the Vietnam War era, worked there in New Kensington and is from New Kensington. John Philo, the photographer from the Kent State photo, mm -hmm. was an intern there. So this paper has a, a long history of photojournalism and and that's kind of where I cut my teeth and 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 just continued to to learn as much as I could learn. And it eventually led me to my position in Pittsburgh at uh, the Pittsburgh newspaper, the Tribune Review. That's and, a pretty good ladder to climb there from from paper to paper up to the Trib, which I would think and, and you guys are both from Pitt Greensburg. So does does Pittsburgh's paper kind of hold like a plateau in that area of like, OK, that's a little more big time because it's the nearest city. Yeah, Maybe I mean, not. It, it was. It was. I mean, it's a my path. I don't think my path exists today. I don't mm -hmm. think that a young photographer wanting to be a photojournalist could take the path that I took. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a matter of luck and timing and and perseverance, really. And and, you know, Pittsburgh was a big newspaper and there was two newspapers in Pittsburgh at the time. The Pittsburgh Tribune Review doesn't exist the way it did when I was there. And they surely don't have uh, international um, scope like they did when I was there. But when I joined the paper staff, they said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to cover international news. And, and the publisher at the time was, was, you know, into covering those types of stories and, and help promote it and gave me that uh, ability. When you say, where, where did the passion come from to cover international stories? Well, I think it, it's, it's a, it's a curiosity that's been in me since I was a kid. You know, I, I never had a camera, but I always had like a point and shoot camera. And I was interested in looking at things and I was interested in learning about things and I loved history. So about the time that I went to the Valley News Dispatch in Trenum um, was, was right about the time of 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, you know, the, these, these international stories kind of moved to the forefront of what I was seeing and, and hearing about my colleagues that I had become friends with were were going and covering the wars. Um, I wanted I always wanted to be tested. I wanted to do whatever I was doing to the, the, the fullest that I could do it. And it seemed to me that like conflict photography was something that involved, you know, risk and great reward. And and I wanted to, you know, I set my goals on that and I wanted to achieve it. Uh, one of my close friends was a, a photographer named Chris Hondros, and Chris was with me on 9-11, and we were in Shanksville when the, you know, soon after the plane crashed there, and we, you know, had worked that scene for a while and tried to cover it as well, we, as well as we could, and Chris said to me, you know, hey, I'm, I'm leaving, do you want to come with me? And he got in his car and drove to New York, and from New York, he ended up in, in Pakistan, and in Pakistan, he ended up in Tora Bora. And I chose to stay back and, and not take that path. But um, Chris went on to cover the conflicts in, in really every conflict in the last 20 years and eventually was killed in Libya um, doing that kind of work. But, you know, my path then was a little slower. I stayed, in, I stayed at the newspaper and felt that I had to cover kind of the stuff that was happening here uh, and that eventually I would be able to go over there and tell those stories. Does, you know, I, I look back on my own career, you know, I haven't covered anything quite as monumental and history making as September 11th, but like I hear from a lot of people 
in the field who have, when you're in a situation like that and you, you know, you were fairly early in your career, you know, when you're in a situation like that, did the gravity of it and of what you were trying to capture kind of hit you? Or is that something that like after the fact, when you're going back and looking at your images, because I always wonder about people like yourself who are in these situations where these major things are happening and they're trying to capture it, you know, as it's unfolding through a lens, do you kind of understand the gravity of what's happening around you as you're doing it? Or is it something when you get back and you look at your film or your images, you're like, whoa, you know, what did I just see? It varies. Sometimes you do, you do recognize the situation you're in. In 9-11, I don't think I did. I was young. I don't think any of us really knew like what that day was in the moment, particularly because this was, I, I don't, I, I know I had a cell phone, but I don't believe it was like a smartphone. I wasn't really, con- I, I could make calls and little things like that. So I wasn't really sure what was happening. Once I got in my car and drove to Shanksville, I was kind of off the radar and most of us were, you know, I remember standing kind of on this side of the road uh, where they kind of had media kind of crowd and we, we had no idea that, that what was happening in New York, but we knew that there were no, fl- no planes flying and all of a sudden a plane flew overhead and we all just stopped and froze and watched this plane. And I photographed it and, you know, the photos seemingly a boring photo of a plane flying overhead, but I think about what that meant to us at the time, we were all kind of, wow, what is this plane? And it happened to be um, Governor Tom Ridge flying out to the site. But, you know, it wasn't until that day I finished shooting and was driving home to, to process my film that I had a chance to even catch up on what actually happened that day. Um, wow. And then the way our work goes, you know, you, 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 you're into the next day already. I was into blood drives and all the stuff that kind of followed and, I continued to go to Shanksville very, very frequently for years and visit the site and, and try to kind of figure out what that site meant to me, to the people, to the community, to the country. And, you know, actually there was, I had shot film then and I, I turned in a few pictures for the newspaper, but it wasn't until this year I actually sat down and looked through my entire take. And there was, you know, a handful of pictures that at the time probably wouldn't have been powerful images that would have ran in the newspaper. But now with 20 years between, you know, between us, the photos had a different kind of weight. And I kind of looked at them and it, they told a story that I don't think I would have seen then. So I didn't realize the value that I had, but it took 20 years for that value to really be seen for me. And and it was kind of an, an interesting thing to sit down on the 20th anniversary. And I decided not to go to the site, but instead look through my old pictures and, and see what I could say with them. Would you say that's something that you truly love about photography is that the image speaks differently over time? Yeah, I, and I think it's, it that, that has, for me with my work, I feel like I work kind of in the quiet moments mm-hmm. that sometimes they may not have the immediacy that, that loud big photos might have but they have a, I hope a, a, a longer lifespan when you can kind of look back and then and realize that it says something greater than you originally anticipated how did you find that it was one of like the main questions I had for you was every, like every writer every storyteller sort of finds their thing like what what kind of really really pulls them in and says this is what uh why I love the art. Like I, 
I have a background in acting. A lot of our audience knows that. The thing that you know I loved, I loved diving into a complex character and trying to like piece together what that life is and then trying to portray that. Um, you know, and and I just that that idea of the quiet moment really rings true with me because you find that in acting as well. You find this this weird sort of thing on stage or in front of the camera where it's human. It's very real. Um, but you, I mean, I don't know if you started off thinking, I want to find the quiet moments, you know, <laughs> in a basketball game, <laughs> but yeah. How did you find it? Uh, no, I, I, well, I think I was always driven to the really loud moments. And one of the reasons I selected some of the photos that I selected today was, um, you know, another photographer that I work with, a colleague of mine had said that even in the quiet moments, I sought out conflict mm -hmm. and I was, you know, it, it, even things that may seem simple or mundane had, they, there was a lot happening in them and they were, there was power. In it. And I think it was just a matter of, you know, it's not how I started out, but I think that your style kind of finds you. Hmm. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer to why I kind of find those moments more fascinating for me but uh it's just kind of where my lens goes i kind of move into the quiet and also because you know a lot of times when you're working um on big stories or whatever you're, you're there's a whole bunch of photographers and journalists working together mm -hmm. and i always hated the idea of like providing uh, a viewer or a reader the same thing the guy next to me was providing mm -hmm. so in those big scrums of journalists i would always kind of like sneak off to the side and go what everybody's looking here but what's happening here mm -hmm. And, you know, that also took a little bit of, uh, I, I was fortunate that the newspaper that I worked for allowed me that ability that not necessarily to always come back with a picture that is the picture, but something off to the side that would say something. Um, that, that, having that freedom is, is the way you're able to do those types of things. In today's day and age, the way newspapers work, it's all about like the immediacy of like, you better be Snapchatting and FaceTiming and and you got to shoot of you know this and you got to have this and you got to send it all in and it's got to be posted before you come back and file your photos and you can't work to find those quiet moments because you're so rushed to tell all these stories immediately so and you're working I, at the go ahead i'm sorry i see newspaper that you know that's a failure that's happening now with with media so you're working at the trib what what was your next step how long were you there i I started at the Pittsburgh Trib right around 2002 or three, and I stayed there until, um, I guess, about six years ago, five years ago. Hmm. I'm, I'm really bad with time. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was time to go. There was a lot of changes happening in the newspaper. The editor was, was uh, more or less forced to retire, and um, he was like a father to me. And I knew what I had said to myself when he was gone, I was gone. Yeah. And the day he walked out of the newspaper, I turned in my, my, my notice and took a buyout and went freelance. And I knew that probably meant the end of my international coverage because it's a hard story to tell um, financially and, and a way to get to these places to tell these stories. And I thought, well, and this was, you know, a time when a lot was happening in America. And I, that's when I kind of decided that it was important that I seek out the kind of stories I sought out internationally here and to tell those stories. And quite honestly, you know, I had lost, I lost my friend, Chris in, in conflict and, 
uh, I was getting older and, and there's a reason why there's not a lot of like really old conflict photographers. Um, you know, I, it was time for me to, to find a new path. And, and that was my freelance career, which has been incredibly rewarding. And, and uh, honestly, now, if you ask me, I wouldn't go back to newspapers. I would stay on this path. Um, because it's allowed me so many different varieties of things where I'm, I'm making films. I'm doing, I still do. My passion has always been photojournalism, but I do commercial photography and, and, and all, you, you name it, if you can do it with a camera, I do it. And all of those things kind of give me different rewards. Um, but I'll always stay true to my, my photojournalism. That's, that's who I identify as. Justin, I want to ask you about being in, in conflict. I, uh, I guess like a two a two part question. Talk to us about how maybe like the first time you found yourself in one of those places, and also how you maintain a sense of like being able to do what you're there to do, which is capture these moments in in such turmoil, but also like um, you know do your job. Because I have a a friend that I've come to know through the series I do, who was a a combat cameraman, so kind of similar, um, except he worked not with still photography, but with video. Um, and he and I talked about a lot about like how difficult it was kind of in some of those moments to, you know, realize that, hey, you still have a job to do, even though though there's like chaos going around, uh, going on around you. So I guess talk to us a little bit about maybe like the, how you kind of found yourself in um, a conflict zone the first time and what that's like to kind of have to go through those moments and still, you know, shoot photos, which is what you're there to do. Yeah. Well, I, I started out kind of knowing that I, I wanted that path to, to, to be able to be, to be able to be, to cover conflict that I had to start somewhere. So what I did is in my head, I, you know, I devised this plan that I, I had to let it, I couldn't just jump into, to war zones. I had to kind of figure out a path to, to train myself in some way. So I did a trip to Cuba and then from Cuba, I went to India and worked on a project, kind of trying to figure out how do you work? How do you immerse yourself in these places where you don't speak the language? You have all these obstacles you have to kind of overcome. How do you hire a fixer, a driver? How do you get to here and there? A fixer there, is the person went, that sort of sets you up with the people you want to shoot with? Or yeah, a fixer, it fixes everything. If you need a, if you, whatever you need um, in country, that's a person that helps you get it, Start, sets up interviews, figures out travel and safety, mm. security and all those things. And mm -hmm. like um, I'm my child's fixer. Yeah. Like I get her everything. <laughs> yep. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and from there, then I went to Pakistan and I went to Pakistan after uh, Benazir Bhutto was assassinated, maybe a couple weeks after that happened. And um, I ended up spending several months in Pakistan. Uh, it might've been two or three months and, um, okay. This was on your own. No, this um, was for the newspaper with with okay. a reporter. Wow. Okay. Uh, the reporter I work with, her name was Betsy Heil, and she lived in Egypt. She uh, was a tremendous conflict reporter, as well, you know, to work with. And she uh, and I would sit down together and and say, "We need to go somewhere. What do we want to do?" And we would come up with these stories, and and we decided we wanted to go to Pakistan and see what was happening there, because again, all the focus at that time was kind of on Iraq. And this was 2008 and Afghanistan was barely being covered at that point. And, you know, nobody was talking about Pakistan. So we said, let's go see what it's, it looks like in Pakistan right now. And, and 
we did, I think, some uh, some terrific reporting from there and traveled all over the region. Uh, where, you know, I stayed with the former president and and saw kind of what was happening on his end and and in elections that were happening. We um, were tracking potential top uh, Taliban um, fighters that were hiding in Pakistan and and interviewing people that could tell us about what was, why that was happening and how that was happening. And uh, we worked kind of along the, the Pakistan border with Afghanistan. And we did that for it's several very, months. I mean, that's a very, as they would say in the military, very kinetic spot. Um, you're dealing with Taliban coming across the border, bar, you know, forward and back. And American military had a lot of fobs all up and down that border, correct? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was dangerous. It was dangerous work. And every, there were so many different threats in Pakistan. You know, we had a, a suicide bomber, um, you know, bomb an area near where we were having dinner, and we had there was kidnapping threats against us and potential um, threats to to kill us. Uh, there was, you know, in the end, it ended up we our visas had expired, and we had to get we had to be, a, you know, I don't want to say evacuate, but we had to leave the country immediately. Mm-hmm. And we left Pakistan and, and, and that's a long story that would, would take us probably five years of your podcast to, to tell it all, but <laughs> we got a lot of episodes. So yeah, we yeah, you want to come we, back on to have that conversation. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah. We, we fled Pakistan and, 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 and made it to Dubai. And, and I personally told myself, I will never go back there again. Um, mm-hmm. the, the risks were just, were just, uh, were, it was a lot. It was more than we I had anticipated, and we came back and regrouped. And um, the next year, I went back to Pakistan, two thousand nine. Now, did you have a family also at this point? Like, did I you did. Yeah. Yes. Does that I, shift your your thinking of this? Like, how how it, having like a, a child and being like, I can still put myself into a hot spot, like. Uh, what was that process thinking through? I, I, I certainly uh, wouldn't uh, think less of you for, for you need to do your job. You need to tell these stories. But was there a bit of you that was like, I'm putting my life on the line. Also, there's others, there's these other responsibilities. Yeah. I, I had a conversation with myself that, that, you know, I, I want my child and now my children to know that uh, their dad believed in something and he believed that sometimes if you do the right thing, it involves great risk. And with great risks also comes great reward. And I really truly believe that with my camera, I was able to make a difference in the world. And it may not be a huge difference. Um, you know, I may not change policy. I may not change the direction of wars or things, but I might change a few people's minds. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if you can do that, then you've had some success, you know. Uh, I would want them to do the same thing. So whatever they were passionate about, even if it involved great risk, that they would do it and believe in it. And I had that conversation with myself when when um, I became a father that that's something I want them to understand and do themselves. I had heard but you I speak realized, of that. Go ahead. I realized I didn't answer your question about when I was first in combat and, and how do you work when <laughs> um, you're in these situations. And, and the, the whole point about Pakistan was, so from Pakistan, I was on this side of the border. I left Pakistan and went to Afghanistan and came in from the opposite side of the border. And that was my first endeavor into, 
into actual conflict photography, being an embedded journalist. I was embedded with 101st Airborne. And when you, when I, you know, I remember my first, when I first made it into Afghanistan, I flew into Kabul airport and took a taxi from there to Bagram Air Force Base. And at Bagram, you go in and they kind of figure out where they're going to send you. And I kind of just showed up at the gate. I'm like, hey, I'm here for my embed. And they kind of direct us to where we had to go. Did you have and, orders to be embedded or do you just yeah. showed up? Okay. Yeah, that was <laughs> very much just like there. calling the editor at the very beginning of your career and being like, hey, I'm here. <laughs> hey. Um, no, it was all set up ahead in advance. And, and I, I knew I had, it was expected that day and just showed up at the gate. They left you in and I joined the rest of the, the journalists who were there trying to figure out where they were all going. And I didn't really have any, you know, they would ask, where do you want to do? What do you want to see? And my main thing was I had been on this border with Pakistan. I kind of wanted to see what was happening on the, on the Afghan side of the border. Mm -hmm. So they put us on a plane to a, another base called Salerno. And I remember taking off on the C-130 with all the soldiers who were kind of going into combat. And I had my ear earbuds in and um, was listening to music that to me was, you know, I, I listened to Paint It Black. <laughs> and um, it was a, there was an old TV show when I was growing up and called Tour of Duty. And that was like the theme song, I believe, for that show. And to me, for some reason, that's the song that was in my ears when I took off and, and was like entering war zone. So now I can't hear that song without thinking about that flight, kind of taking off through the mountains of Kabul. And, but the first time I was in combat, like the, the first firefight was, I tell people it was a lot like, you know, it, to me, it wasn't a big deal. It was like, this is what I'm here for. This is what I do. And I think about my father, who's been a, a volunteer fireman for, well, for, for decades. And I tell him, I'm like, it's no different than what you do. You rush into a burning building when everybody's rushing out and, and it's what you do. You don't think twice about it. So when I was there and, and, and we were ambushed, uh, it was time to work. And, and my focus became make pictures and figure out how do you do this and tell this story safely. And I kind of, it all turns off and all turns on at the same time. Like your sentences are heightened. I could, I could still see the tracer fire kind of flying around me, but I was so keyed into like what I was doing that I felt like, you know, I was, uh, I was just in the zone and, and able to, to focus on, you know, at that time I was looking at where is there light that I can make a picture because it's pitch black and i'm looking for little tiny bits of light that i was able to to use to to make pictures because i couldn't obviously have a flash on and um you know cameras weren't as sophisticated then as they are now to be able to shoot in low light environments right what kind of is that relationship like with between you and you know the the people that you're em embedded with because like you're all, you know, they have their military culture and their lifestyle, and then you're coming in and looking at things from a different perspective. So what's that, you know, dynamic kind of like being embedded with these people and having to kind of essentially, it's, it's like a weird version of a job shadow, like you're following them around to where they go. Yeah, it, it took, it takes a little while to have the, them loosen up to you. And it was, we were fortunate in Afghanistan that I spent most of my time with one group of soldiers. So I had time to get to know them. And I used to, at the time I was a smoker. So I would sit out in the smoking hut with them and just kind of listen to them and figure out how I could get them comfortable with me being there at a camera. And, and eventually, you know, I, I, I told them, I'm like, I'm not here to play gotcha. I'm here to tell your stories. And if I'm not here to tell it, then 
maybe no one will, you know, who knows? I mean, it's a, it's a big country. It's a lot of soldiers and not a lot of journalists. And I think your story is important. And, you know, I think they recognized that, that they had something, you know, these, this was, this group that I was with was kind of a, a, a mixture of, you know, these, these kids were mechanics and, and, you know, a whole bunch of different jobs that were thrust into like combat infantry troops. And they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. And they were 25 kids who were patrolling 500 square miles of Afghanistan. That was their area of operation. Significant, like that you can't cover that much ground with with that. And and I I totally agree with your term kids, like they're kids out in this, you know, fob trying to protect this area from God knows what, uh, or, you know, and, and the people they're fighting know the terrain. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they, in the beginning, I, I was there kind of in the beginning of their, of their embed. And, and I think they were, you know, they had trained for this. They were having some fun. Right. And then and then war shows up and and the reality of war happens. And, you know, I think that if I were to sit down with them at the end of their embed compared to the beginning when I was there, they would have very different opinions of what they experienced. I know they lost some soldiers and some of the soldiers that I was with were killed soon after I left. And, um, you know, it, it, the human mind is a powerful thing that's able to kind of disconnect in times. And even in these, these really scary moments, you kind of, you find, you know, levity and, and humor and mm-hmm. you, you, you do things to kind of um, protect yourself from what you're really in. I mean, I, we all do it. And, it's not a matter of being insensitive towards the situation. It's a matter of like just human condition and doing it. It's one of the things I look at in my photography is that it's that to me, it's also about in these, in these war zones, that it's, it's also about the people who live there and this is their home. So they see war completely different than, than we do, who are just kind of show up and like, Oh, this, you know, this is, this is dangerous. And this is this, well, this they've lived with it. And a lot of times in Afghanistan, you know, they had lived with war their entire lives. Mm-hmm. and they have seen this for a long time and they're conditioned to you know the kids look no different than the kids we have on our streets here in pittsburgh and they want to play soccer and and they want to chase after trucks and and throw sticks and stones and um but you're sitting there going like literally there's bombs going off around these kids and there's you know every day they're seeing you know heavy military equipment driving through their streets but yet they're playing stickball and and playing cricket in the streets as though life is normal so these soldiers were kind of grappling with that like what is you know what is normal to them i'm glad you brought up the term just the reality of war and before we get to your pictures i want to ask you one more question because you've mentioned your your friend chris who you lost in libya and this idea of reality of war like you can't really you don't really know what a soldier's been through with losing someone until you've lost someone in a war zone as well. How did how did Chris's uh, death sort of change you uh, and change your process in your photojournalism career and your thoughts on it? Well, it made me really question, you know, in the beginning, it made me question, is it worth it? You know, was it worth it for Chris to be there? He had accomplished so much in his life that you know, when, when is enough? When do you, when do you know to say, this is, I'm done, I've done what I need to do and step back. And um, I think Chris was at that point, which is the real tragedy. And he was at the point where he, he was kind of done with conflict. And this was maybe one of his last trips. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the day that he was killed was, 
he went out that morning and shot some true just tremendous images and and could have been done at that went back to the hotel and and filed his stuff but he went back out again and that's when uh he was killed with alongside of um um tim hetherington and 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 you know i wonder about conversations that i would have with chris now you know and say to him like well you know what would you have done you know what do you recommend what should i you know should i be doing this stuff you know are you glad you did it you know and i i could hear him saying like no it's not worth it like live to tell another story another day and and there's others you know war isn't the only story out there i mean especially when you think of war and the fallout of war and you think about all the veterans that come home and what they're faced with and those stories are important to tell too and those stories can actually help a lot of other veterans to understand like i'm going through that same thing and and they see it in this story of this other person and they maybe that helps them get help in a way or helps them find um a career path or something to find some reward or even a group to hang out with mm -hmm. um that that can share similar interests and talk, tell tell war stories because it it's not that people don't want to talk about their experiences in war all the time. Sometimes it's just it's hard to relate to a person who's been in these situations that they can't just talk to a civilian who doesn't understand it. Because when I say these guys were having fun, you know, someone might hear that and take offense to that. But another veteran would understand. Like we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun, and you know, and and. It, it's a hard thing for people to wrap their mind around. So people are very cautious about how they tell their stories about a time in, in war, because unless you were there to experience it, you, you know, you may take it the wrong way. Uh, I've heard it described as long stretches of boredom mixed with flashes of terror. <laughs> and like in those moments of boredom, you probably are having fun playing cards, you know, uh, messing with each other, things like that. Um, but that's, that sort of rings true. And it was very well said, uh, Catherine. Yeah, Justin, you know, you talk about like you said something that kind of I know we've talked about here at the VBC and I've talked about with a lot of veterans is like being a a soldier and being in combat and military service while a large part of people's lives and I don't mean to diminish this at with their service at all by saying this it's not a for a lot of people it's not their entire life like they're still you know parents and brothers and sisters and you know they are children themselves and they have other interests in other things and I think what got me about one of the photographs that you sent us was um you know I'm sure we'll talk about it when Sean pulls them up but like a lot of these photographs you show kind of like the reality of what happens back home like we think of the realities that they go through during war and during conflict, but sometimes maybe more touching and heartbreaking is the reality of what they have to come back home to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the people, you know, war leaves giant holes, not just in, you know, the loss of a soldier, but that ripple effects of, of who that loss affects. I just came back, I just was in Texas this past week, covering a marathon where this group called where um, where blue run runs for um, gold star families they run the marathon and they have posters up of all the 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 soldiers who had lost their lives and soldiers sailors airmen marines service members that lost their lives and you know they gather around in a circle before they run and they tell who they're running for and i stood down there i've never been with this group before and imagine they're they're running for maybe a hundred different um, service members and I'm sitting there and they go around the circle and three of the service members they mentioned, I 
either knew or knew a relative of or covered a story about. And you listen to, you, you see that, that, that generations are affected by these losses and that, that their kids who have lost a father that had never met them were, you know, we're talking about that and, uh, and, and the struggles that they have that, um, you know, I, I, it's, 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 it's a lot bigger than just, you know, the big, the war. Well, a lot of times we, when we talk about, you know, veterans and their service, we focus on their points of, you know, their points when they're in combat or in conflict, but like, there is a whole ripple effect of what happens when people come home. And I, that's also why I loved a few of the photos that you, you know, sent us that we'll talk about is it, you know, you really, you really kind of showed all aspects of, you know, what that life is and what that means. And I think that's something that, you know, we talk about that, Sean, all the time here at the BBC, like it's important to remember what happens when our military comes home too, you know? Yeah, it's the, the battlefield stretches far beyond these foreign soils. It stretches home and, and these soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, they are faced with, with this story goes on and, and, and affects in many different ways and down to the, the, the spouses and the, the children and, you know, coming home and trying to, you know, find your place in society because you were, you know, if you were out there on the front lines, you were, you know, a, a trained um, to do things that you don't do in normal life. So how do you come back and kind of reassimilate to society in a way that's, that allows you those same feelings that maybe you enjoyed is the, the rush, the adrenaline. It's the same thing for combat photographers, you know, I don't talk about it much, but I was diagnosed with PTSD. And, and part of the reason for my PTSD diagnosis was that you all, I was running on this heightened level of adrenaline in, in my work that I was always kind of like, you know, in danger and in risks and having all these things happen around me. And then I would come back to my normal daily assignments and be covering, you know, a, a marbles tournament or, you know, a bake sale. And in my, my, you know, it was hard for me to like make that adjustment mm -hmm. to life. And I would come home, you know, you know, it may not have been again, the big loud moments and the bombs and the guns and that kind of thing, but it was just living in this always kind of peril and then not. Yeah. And how do you kind of find that balance again? Mm -hmm. um, well, for our audience, we're going to get over to the pictures now. So if you've been listening to audio, now's the time to jump over to YouTube. Uh, don't know if we'll be able to have time to get through all of the pictures that, that Justin has uh, so graciously supplied us with. But Justin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you uh, the crack on which one you would like to, to bring up. Is there a particular one that you would like to talk about? You know, I, I, I think the pinky kiss is one is one that resonates with a lot of people. Um, this is an image on the border. I traveled the entire border with Mexico from Brownsville, Texas to San, uh, to San Diego. And um, this is where the border wall ends and spills into the Pacific Ocean in San Diego. And this is a young child meeting his grandmother for the first time. And this is the extent of the physical contact that they have ever had and that they that they have is just they are able to touch what they call pinky kisses through the border fence wow yeah, just, just one of those ones you know i i can only imagine how many hundreds or thousands of photos you take while you're out you know at a, at a place on assignment or you know when you go with your freelance work but 
you know, is this one of those images where like you realized what you captured in the moment or were you kind of back looking through all your photos and then you realized, you know, this is the one? Because I know, you know, from my own experience, journalists take take a lot of photos or a lot of video and sometimes you don't always realize what you have until you get a second look at it, you know? Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, there's a whole story about how I even had to get this picture, which was which was crazy. Um, but I realized it was a, a moment that was really important. But, you know, I had worked for three months traveling the border and had all these photos from, you know, the 2000 miles of border. But it, but it's what, what always kind of uh, strikes me is that this is the photo I always show when I talk about the border and all those other photos, all that other work for three months kind of boils down to this. And I feel like when people ask me what does the border crisis mean to me, you know, I, you know, as journalists, we kind of stay impartial and out of the story, but this is real. This is the reality of the border fence is that it separates these families and they're unable to have, you know, the things that humans should be allowed to have physical contact to hug your grandmother, to meet your grandmother face to face. And that, mm -hmm. you know, what is the right answer? I don't know, but surely it's not that. Um, kids shouldn't have to just touch pinkies with their grandmother. So I, I want to strike that conversation up and hope that that affects someone and maybe changes their opinion in some way to understand that these are, these are human beings and that, you know, I'm not saying one answer is right or wrong, but, but this as humans, this is not the way we should, you know, want our society to be. And so I, like, you just, oh, I'm sorry. I, but I was before this, you just struck a chord with me as a fellow, you know, journalist in a sense, because you said as journalists, we're supposed to remain impartial and, you know, people see the images that we will put on paper or out there or the stories that we cover and, you know, it, it, sometimes when you get in these large situations like you at the border, it's almost like how your human, being a human being overtakes being a journalist. Like, how do you not feel something about what you're covering? And I think especially probably for you in still photography, that makes a better, you know, a better image. You putting your own feeling behind it and capturing and understanding and you know, having an opinion about how others are feeling. Like as a journalist, it's almost impossible, especially with the major things happening in the world right now to stay impartial anymore. It is, it is hard. And, and, you know, I, I take great pride in my work that in, in, in my entire career, I feel like it would be very hard to say that I have um, a side. I feel like you can look through my body of work and see that I've given everybody a voice, even people that, you know, fundamentally, I probably disagree with at a personal level, but at a professional level, as a journalist, I still give them a voice and, and, and a platform to tell their story as long as I feel their story is, is not, um, you know, completely off base or, or steeped in some, um, you know, false narrative. But yeah, I, I go into this, it, it's hard. It's hard to not, you know, have a side, but my side really, the side I think all journalists should have is truth. And, and, and my pictures, I try to seek out the truth and, and I don't have to add my opinion into something. I can simply show you this and say like, this is the reality of it. This is what I saw. And I traveled the whole border and I saw all kinds of other things. I was in, I was in stash houses and I was with um, coyotes who were smuggling people across the border. And I was, you know, in tunnels where they were tunneled under the wall. And I saw all of that. And 
through all of that, through three months of the travel and, and the miles, it boiled down to this to me. And this is what I saw that really affected me. And, and, uh, and, it, and it's like, we're, we're, we all are humans. And if we're not, if we don't feel things when we, we see an image like this, then I really feel sorry for us as a society. Certainly this one was very striking to me. And I, I wonder, my, my, my thought goes to how did they leave this fence? Like the moment they both decided to turn around and, and walk back to their side and what, and what was this little boy's experience at, for that, you know, did, you know, how does he feel after that? That's, I, I don't know. That's where my thought process kind of goes and the yeah. loss that I'm sure the grandmother feels of like, you know, that's as close as I'm going to get. And it's, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and the sad part is, you know, this is a story that's repeated all over the world mm -hmm. that a lot of these wars we cover are based on a line drawn in the sand that says, this is this country and that's that country. And if you go to these places and, you know, places in Pakistan where I was along the border and, you know, I saw it in Ukraine, I saw it in, in Egypt and um, all these other countries. This is this line, this arbitrary line that says, this is this country and this is this country. And if you cross this line, we're going to fight you. But you go there and, and you, you know, I was on the border in, 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 in the U.S. border with Mexico. And there's a, a Native American woman who lives on the last house on the last road between the U.S. and Mexico. But her yard is now split in half. Half of her relatives are on one side and the other half are on the other side. And for her to visit people in her backyard, she has to drive all the way out two hours to a checkpoint to go through a border cross station and all the way back to her other backyard. And for her, you know, the, it was the, it, they, she didn't identify as, as this or that. She was, she was a uh, Tohono O'odham and this was her tribal lands. And this is where she grew up and her family's on this side of that line that someone drew and this on the other side of the rest of them. But mm -hmm. Um, the idea of borders um, is something that wars have been fought over for, for yeah. forever and will continue to be fought over, but it, it should strike the conversation of like, what is this land we're fighting over and, and is there a better way to, to do it? I don't, I don't know. I don't have those answers, but simply try to tell the stories to let other people come to those conclusions. Is there another image that you would like to highlight? Oh, I don't even remember what I sent you. So let's, uh, let's go with, I'm going to go with the, the soldier kissing uh, his newborn, which I don't, maybe Catherine, was this the one that. Oh, this is the one that got me. Yeah, it's me too. I, I, you know, both of us, all three of us sort of having uh, young children. Um, whenever I was researching Justin and his photos, this one popped up and it like, you don't know this feeling until you're there with your newborn but certainly we all don't know this feeling of being a soldier who then has to leave their newborn um which to me is just i can't i can't process that um but boy uh how did you find yourself in this moment justin this was a group of soldiers in new kensington who were deploying i want to say to kosovo um this is probably in early 2000 2000 yeah I think it was might have been 2000 and it was one of the you know you go to the event at the at the armory and they're all families are all there waving the flags and everybody's getting ready to to head out and leave and go to war or go deploy and this was again one of those moments where all the media was kind of over here and I walked back into a room where the this is the room where like the the soda machines were 
And I saw him kind of walk back there with his baby by himself and his, with his wife, I believe. And I just followed along thinking, well, there's something's going to happen. And this intimate quiet moment happened. And I was just there and captured it and kind of went back. And, and this is another instance where I didn't really know if I got it or not, because the light was kind of weird. And it was this <clears throat> dark room with fluorescent lights and soda machines everywhere. Um, which is why it's in black and white because in color it just is ugly. Um, it's amazing to think that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just it's a, it's a, a quiet moment that literally would have went unnoticed uh, except for just a little bit of luck and being in the right spot at the right time. And you know, I have looked at this picture for twenty years and regretted that I did not follow up with this family because I'd love to find them and see what's happened in their lives and. Uh, every time I see it, I think about, ah, I got to reach out and find them. And I've been doing that for 20 years, but it's a quiet moment, you know, in the other room, they're waving flags and there's big banners and God bless America is playing and all the families are there and all the other media is there. But in this little tiny room, this happens. And this is to me says everything that you need to know about being deployed. It's the, to me, I looked at, I'm, I'm like getting all emotional again, um, cause your work is so powerful, but like, to me, this perfectly captures the, the essence of sacrifice because that little baby is not going to remember that dad, you know, wasn't there for the first couple months. Cause you know, we don't remember things when we're, you know, a few weeks old, a few months old, but like dad is going to remember that forever. And dad did that so that, you know, essentially we can all sit here and be talking about this podcast right now. And I think that that is, something just really important that I always stress to people to remember is that it's not, and we talk about this too, it's not just like the combat and the fighting. It's like this, this self-sacrifice of family time and, you know, stuff that like we as people here, and, you know, you did it too, Justin. I mean, you left your family for periods of time. Like, it's just, it's, it's a lot of sacrifice. And I think you perfectly captured that in a photo. Yeah. And I'm sorry, you just, uh, this one, just, you really got me with this one, man. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're right. There is, when you think about our service members, not all of them are even, or would be out fighting on the front lines. There's so many support, you know, that they're mechanics, they're engineers, they're, you know, kitchen staff, there's, you know, aviation people that never, never step out of the wire of the of the combat outpost or the fob mm -hmm. but are completely uh you know um instrumental in in everything that happens on a day-to-day -day basis in in war zones and those people all left their lives behind and, and moments like this behind and and what you you know i think about is like you said the baby may not remember any of this but how much i miss with watching my son now the my my, my baby develop in a week and to think that life is so short we we you know we got one run on this 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 ball here and and you can't ever get that time back it's gone forever so he missed really some some beautiful parts of this child's life that he sacrificed missing that for the rest of us so that you know we didn't have to go do it and you know, I was fortunate. Yes, I, I've been there, but also I get to come back. Like I can leave when I want to leave. I can, yeah. you know, I know that I'm not doing a year there. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a remarkable commitment. Yeah, certainly. Um, 
Yeah, I, I agree with Catherine. I agree with both of you. What you both so perfectly put towards this. Um, I can't really add anything more intelligent than that. <laughs> um, I just I love this photo, uh, and I would like to pop up another one here. Um, this one goes uh, to. I'm not sure where you took this photo. Um, here we are. This is the I believe a, uh, an Afghan soldier. Yeah, this is an Afghan soldier. Um, it was on a mission. We were very high up. I think we were at like 10,000 feet elevation, very close to the border with Pakistan. And it kind of struck me. It, it always, I have a photo. I should have included it from Iraq of a young soldier. And I look at these, I mean, I just see this is like a kid and the power and the destruction that he's just even holding that he has this RPG that can decimate, you know, whatever he shoots at. And, um, I just, there's such, there's such a vulnerability in him and in his face that it just struck me. I definitely see innocence. Sure. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's the first thing that sort of pops into my head. And it's one of those things I look at some photos like this and I see people in these instances and I, th I see us, you know, I see, you know, you, you take us, he could be anybody. He could, he could be an American. It could be the kid next door. And here he is living this, this life of combat and war. And yeah. How old do you think he was? Oh, I, I would be shocked if he was 18. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, that was the first thing that struck me too, is, you know, you would think that your eyes in the photo would go to what he's holding, but really I'm, I was drawn straight to the, his face. And my first thing was, my gosh, he's a kid. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that drives all these other questions about like, you know, the, the poverty in these regions and, and, and what, you know, forces a kid to end up in this, you know, in the military there, it's not like the military here where you, 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 you get benefits and you have all these extra things that, that can help your life by your service. But, you know, there's a lot of things that put him in that spot in that time that we couldn't understand because it's very different than, than our past would be in America. Now we're going to share another here. This is a photo from a Christian colony in Islamabad, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And this little girl, it's a very, very poor Christian colony. Um, they, she's getting water from a broken pipe. That's where they get their drinking water. And um, they, they, they didn't, they, these tents that they were living in didn't have floors. They didn't even have blankets on the floor. I mean, it was really, really, really crude. And they, they've been living there her entire life and many people for, for a long, long time. And uh, they bathe, they wash their clothes and they get drinking water from like the same puddle of water. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's right in the middle of Islamabad. So it, when you picture Islamabad, you know, people who maybe don't know much about it, it's, it's not very different than Washington, DC. It's the, it's, it looks very similar. There's, buildings everywhere and and um it's a very you know big city in pakistan that it, you can go out to eat at an italian restaurant and you can take a taxi and ride a bus and go to the mall and go shopping 
and and this is right there in the center of it all i what i i'm seeing a lot in your your photography is uh the images that that you brought to us is that we get really i get really focused on one particular piece like i'm really focused on her face like that really draws me in but then like suddenly my vision expands into what the story is here and it's just like i may not even see the milk jug to start i just suddenly it's like oh there's tents and oh this seems like it's you know a village or you know what's going on with the pipe and i start to ask questions about what i'm seeing uh beyond just like what is the look on her face making me feel which to me it, it feels like caution like she's uh uh worried about what's what's behind the bush that she's looking at like is there are there it's almost like threat uh mm -hmm. fight or flight in a way um that's sort of where i go with it in a you know yeah there, there is, they are threatened because they are a religious minority in Pakistan. They're, they are threatened and, and, and face persecution and, and, you know, they, they have a very difficult existence. Mm -hmm. And what, what strikes me, you know, this is, this is why I like to do this work though. I like to be places like that and meet people that otherwise nobody would tell their stories. And she would be forgotten to the world, except for a fact that someone pointed a camera at her and said, I'm going to make sure people know your story for the rest of my life. And that's what I do. I, I carry these stories along with me and, and share them. And it's my small way of, of saying she matters. And she mattered to me in that instance when I, you know, one five hundredth of a second when I hit that shutter. But she matters to me every single day that I share her story and, and, and share her photo with people. And now she's probably... Um, 10 years older. Um, I'm hoping she's not in that community, but maybe she is. And, and uh, I like to think that maybe she knows that there's someone out there in the world that's, that's still thinking about her. And that's why I love to do these stories. And this, this community welcomed me with open arms. They were trying to, you know, give me drinks and food, but I knew how little they had, that they were combining whatever they had to bring to me, you know, and I was, of course, refusing, but they were, they brought me like a little juice box and they insisted, but I thought like they are getting their drinking water from a broken pipe. You know, they, I'm sure they went to every tent in that little area. Like, does anybody have something we can give this Westerner? Um, you know, and they kept asking me like, will you make a difference here? Can you help us? Will people in America help? They took me to their church, which was just, it was, it was just like, it wasn't even four walls. I don't know. It was just an area that they called a church. They didn't have a roof. And they asked me, like, do you think the churches in America can help us? You know, and I'm very careful to not make promises that I can't keep. But I said, I can't promise anything. All I can promise is I'll, I'll tell them about you and hope that something happens. But um, I don't think anything has ever happened or helped them. But the last couple oh, go ahead, Sean. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Mine's sort of a final, a final thought. With the last couple of photos that we saw, you know, it brought Sean and I to a place of like, we had a lot of questions. Like we both saw the face at first and then we had a lot of questions about what's going on here. Why are they in this scenario? As a, as a photojournalist, do you like that your work, you know, provokes that kind of thought in people? Like, is that also something you set out to do or you hope like when somebody sees your photo, it has them like asking questions about the larger scope of like why things are the way they are? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like an, it's, there's a, there's a, I have a photo of a girl in, in India 
and she was I was doing a story there on what they had hoped would be the end of polio and she has polio and she lives on the streets and she sells newspapers for like a penny a day and I had driven by her and I saw her and thought I have to find this girl and photograph her again and and through an interesting story I actually did find her again and her name was Ekta and she didn't know how old she was but her parents sent her to live on her own when she was four or five because they said you would have a better life on your own than you will with us so the, the, to think that they thought she would have a better life if they, she lived on the streets as a four or five year old girl than they would with her it was because she had polio and she was she was worthless in their eyes and you know i stopped to photograph her and and it's, it's as i said of the young girl with the broken pipe like um, I have told Ecta's story since the day I took that picture. And I, the, what I feel is to me more important than any award or acclaim or, you know, I, I don't do what I do for any of that. Um, I do it so that I can tell people stories like Ecta and the little girl with the pipe. And, you know, there are stories that, that, that if for not the past, you know, that a lens was aimed at them and I was, graciously given the honor of being present in their life for a split second that I have to carry the weight of their story forever. And I have to share it with as many people as I can to not, you know, maybe influence change or make big things happen, but to make people realize this person matters. And I think that if we do our jobs right as photojournalists is we're letting people see that, that these people matter that cross before our lens and why they matter. And that, you know, I'm not asking people to go give, money and build a church in Pakistan, but I'm asking you to, to maybe care differently about your neighbor or someone across the globe. When you hear a, a story on the news comes on, there's been a bombing in, you know, wherever today, you know, we are so conditioned to not care. We're so conditioned to go, oh, another bombing. But what does that look like there? I mean, mothers were lost, fathers were lost, children were lost, you know, generations were changed. And we, we, we can't become callous to that, that every time we hear it, we have to realize the, the, what has happened there and how it has affected the community. Um, that's what I hope with my cameras. I hope that we can go do these things and, and, and make people care in some small way and, and, and pay attention to what you're hearing on the news. And, and it's, these are human lives. These are human stories. And we are all tied to the same stories. They're all part of us. We're all one. I know it sounds cliche, but we really are. And, and um, the sooner our world realizes that, the, the, the better we'll be. But I, I don't have a lot of hope that we can figure that out because there's enough people that don't listen to get it. I can't really think of a better thought to end this program on, though I my thought before was that's very much what you just spoke of was the, the, the blessing and the curse of being a photojournalist. That you get to view these moments and they may be moments of tragedy and heartbreak and loss, but the, the blessing is that more people, this may change some minds. This may bring attention to something that we don't know about this, you know, um, but to be there in person for it uh, has got to be incredibly challenging. And as you continue through your photojournalism career, and as you've changed your focus back to the United States and the, the <laughs> myriad of conflicts we have here just you know in our own neighborhoods um i want you to speak a bit about american reportage and how that is trying to sort of shed light here and what the mission is 
you know, our, our mission is, it's a collective of photographers from across the country. There's, um, you know, a dozen or so of us. And our idea is we're, 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 we're kind of uh, turning our lens inward and that our focus is telling the story of America's forgotten and underreported on communities and people. And, you know, the, the beauty of it is because we're kind of all over America and different cities that we embed in these places where a lot of times the newspapers have disappeared and there's no one to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. But we live in these communities and towns, so we can we can be here and tell the stories of, of you know, our neighbors and we can do it for long periods of time. So we really kind of focus on long storm, long, long form narrative storytelling of of big stories. Right now, our collective as a whole is working on a story about water across America hmm. and how it affects all these different communities and how it affects us differently. Um, you know, it's it's. They're, they're like, you know, as you said, Sean, there's no shortage of, of stories that are happening right now in our backyards. And, and it's very important that we tell the, the, there's the last the last election, the last presidential election was a very divisive election for America. But we can't tell it from one side or another. We have to understand what each side's feelings are so we know how we got to this point. And you can't do that in a way to like make fun of a side or to, you know, uh, exploit a side you have to kind of come in at it and, and and be willing to listen because there's no bringing the sides together if one side's making fun of another side or this or this that and, and the, often the journalist the problem is we go to these events when you when you see a campaign stop <clears throat> these journalists are flying on a plane they land on the plane they're escorted in with the candidate or the president they sit in the front row the craziest people that come to these things stand in the front row they photograph, videotape, you know, film, interview those people, and they walk out thinking, well, that was Pittsburgh. That was Western Pennsylvania. They don't understand what the people that are in the back that are there because they believe in something else. They don't understand what that is. So we have to spend the time in these communities to see what these people are really coming to these conclusions about of their life, so what they want. And that's kind of where American, American Reportage steps in. We step in to kind of understand how did they get here? How do we get here? And how do we fix it? And part of that is listening and understanding that, you know, you know, there's real, there's real problems out there in America that aren't being addressed by either side of the aisle. And there's people living in poverty that is, you know, very much like the stuff I've seen in in third world countries. I was with a woman in Ohio a couple of weeks ago who had no gas in her house since like May. Um, she cooked her food and, and she, I had asked, I said, I'm going to come photograph you Would noon work. And she's like, Oh, I need two hours to get ready. And I said, two hours, what, what do you need to do? She's well, it takes me two hours to take a bath because I have to fill up my bathtub with teapots that I warm with like a little burner stove. Oh my God. And I said, Whoa, whoa, I need to see that. Um, that's how she's lived since, you know, for months. Um, that shouldn't happen in America. No. That shouldn't happen in a country with with as much as we have with a seven hundred trillion dollar defense budget. Um, that shouldn't happen here. Justin, I think your photographs do this, and I I like hope to do this in my reporting is like to open people's eyes to other stuff. You know, obviously, like in news, we have to do the day to day stuff. Like this is a city council meeting and this event, and a lot of it is good stuff. And I'm happy to go, you know, cover ribbon cuttings and you know all these little things. But like, you know, it's when you find those like gems of like other things that open people's eyes to a bigger issue it's like oh okay like this is why we do what we do you know 
I, I've my old boss again, this guy, his name was Bill Larkin and he was a legend. And he, we used to do a thing at the, at the Valley News Dispatch where we had to go out and shoot golden wed anniversaries. So people who were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary or like hundred year old birthdays. We hated it. We hated it. But you know what? One day he pulled me aside. He goes, you know what? This might be the only time that person's picture is in a newspaper. And they're going to cut it out and they're going to put it on their fridge and their kids are going to save it and they're going to keep it forever. So give this person the due time that you're with them, the five or 10 minutes, like give them the full bit of you as a person, as a photographer there with the camera and give them the best picture possible because it's going to last forever. Mm -hmm. And when once he told me that, it, it hit me that even that ribbon cutting that you're covering, you know it's really important to that person yep. and that is part of their story and it's part of the story of this community and if there's a ribbon cutting it means something's opening and it's a story of this something coming to this town that may be jobs for people and, and if it employs three people it's three people and it changes the narrative of this town so all of those stories are part of the fabric of america and the story that is us and they're important and that's one thing like i've never I go to every assignment as though it's the most important assignment I could ever cover because it's, it is important to someone, whatever it is, it's, there's no mundane stories. And um, I try to find the beauty in all of it. And it might just, it might not be the story. It might not be the picture, but I might meet someone there. that is the most interesting person I could ever meet. And I could enjoy a conversation with them. And that's the beauty of what we do is this camera has taken me all over the world, but, you know, quite honestly, like it's not about passport stamps or, or any of that stuff. To me, it's about the people that I get to meet and, and whether it's down the road, an old coal miner, maybe in West Virginia, um, or, you know, staying with a former president in a foreign country. Um, it's getting the opportunity to, to be in these people's lives for a minute and meet people that I otherwise would never, ever have the opportunity to meet. Amen to all that. Hey, Sean, I have to run. I have to do a noon show, but if you want to wrap up the episode now that you're back, not to cut our conversation off, because Justin and I could probably talk about this all day, but <laughs> I'm, I'm enamored by it and have, have a quick story after you jump off. But uh, thank you, Catherine, for being on the scuttlebutt again. Uh, we're looking forward to having you a part of more episodes and uh, a feature episode that we always do each season. We're looking forward to that uh, later on. Um, but thank you for being a part of it. And we will definitely see you uh, on a future episode. Yes, I have some good stuff coming up for you, uh, VBC listeners, I promise. And Justin, it was a pleasure to meet a uh, fellow journalist and to have kind of two of the things that I love kind of cross over once again on the scuttlebutt. Um, your work is, I'm sure you've heard this a lot, but you're extremely talented and your work is thought provoking. And uh, I appreciate you sharing all of the photographs and stories with us. Well, it's, it's all my pleasure and, you know, keep up the good fight out there and keep telling the stories of your communities and, and uh, I really appreciate your time and conversation. If you ever come to the Ohio Valley, let me know. <laughs> I'm there all the time. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, Justin, I, what we were just saying about uh, capturing a hundred year old, that might be the first photo that is ever of them in the newspaper. In my previous life as acting, I was able to have a couple pictures in some community papers back in the day, but one picture I want to I want to talk about real quick for our listeners and something I've, I've not brought up on this on the podcast is after 9-11, I was at Point Park University. We went down to the point to have a vigil. Um, this is the Saturday, I believe. I believe the Saturday after, if not a day or two after 9-11. And um, we were down there holding aluminum things with a candle in it. Uh, and I had during that 
that day prior to the vigil, I was like, I feeling very kind of patriotic, trying to absorb what was just happening to our world and our country. And I was like, I'm going to go out into the city and I need to find an American flag. I just need to, I, I want to buy one. I need one. And I uh, found a bandana, grabbed it and was just like, okay, that's just something that, that was correlating to how I was feeling. So I purchased it. I took it with me down to the point. We hold the vigil. We go down to the fountain. A couple of friends of myself were sitting in front of the fountain and I'm still holding this candle. I had the American flag bandana sort of over my shoulder. And uh, we're just sitting there chatting. And um, eventually someone walks up to me and they're like, hey, I, I just took your picture for the Post-Gazette. And uh, I was wondering if that's okay that I use it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? And so I, you know, I told her. And um, about three days later, my mom calls me and she goes, why are you on the front cover of the Post-Gazette? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, your grandmother called me and said, you're on the front cover of the Post-Gazette. Here's the picture of the, the presidents at their vigil, all, the last three, Clinton, Bush, um, and, uh, and, and Bush Jr., and, uh, and this enormous picture of me on the front cover of the Saturday edition, holding this candle and, and just me in front of this the fountain. And I still get chills talking about it because I remember running down to the, the, the corner store, buying like three copies of this, and then going back to like my dorm room and just sitting there and not really quite sure how to feel about it. And it was like, and, and it was, it's, it, it, the reason why I bring it up now is because I feel like it wasn't important that I was on the front cover. It was this idea of mourning and patriotism and what that picture brought out. And I remember sitting in the dorm room thinking, I hope someone sees this picture and feels the same level of, of mourning and patriotism that I was feeling in that moment. And I feel yeah. like she really captured that. Yeah. And, and it, and it, you, you're immediately, you're part of the, the recorded record you know you see your picture in a newspaper and this is something we're losing as newspapers disappear is that this tangible thing that i'm part of the historic record of this day for mm -hmm. this town um there's power in that and you know i think the loss of our small community newspapers is 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 a great loss in america that's going to change it's going to change a lot it's that's that's you know our small towns are going to be so affected and, and, and there's just going to be a lot that happens with the demise of new small town community newspapers. I want to finalize this all with one last question for you, because I, I thought you spoke so much truth in the idea of these community papers, the, the, the personal stories that are happening and these are what really matter. And these are how we're going to find our way back to working together as a country. Is there one, is there a way, is there a place that you go to get your news um, for that, that level of truth? Is that something that we can give our audience to say, hey, better than going to the big networks that you might not get these personal stories from, where do you go? You know, I, it's tough anymore. I mean, there's not, a, there's, there, there, there isn't enough places to get local news. And the problem with that is that when people maybe don't understand it, but in the terms of veterans we can use. You know, when you think about, I covered a lot of funerals of fallen soldiers. And, you know, in the beginning, I would get some kind of, you know, people would get kind of angry to see me there. And I would always seek out family members and I would say to them, listen, I, I know it seems 
it seems wrong to have a camera here in this moment or that, you know, I understand how you feel vulnerable and you feel exploited by us being here. I want you to understand that I am here because I care and because someone cares and because it's important we tell the story about your lost loved one and their sacrifice. And the day we stop telling those stories is a really sad day for America. And I think we've got to that point actually now where, you know, we don't necessarily see the coverage we did before. And that tells me something about where we stand as a society and, you know, how kind of callous we've become to our, the loss and sacrifice of our service members. But when these small papers go away, if it's not a milestone loss, so if it's not the 500th soldier or the 1,000th soldier. Or the last or the, yeah. Or the, yeah, or the last. <laughs> you know, who's telling the story about the ones in between mm-hmm. if the local paper isn't there? And there's a lot of places where they're, they're not. They're not they're not doing the work they used to do, you know? Um, I don't know where to get the news with some of that stuff. You know, I, I have that conversation with a lot of people. They're like, well, who do you trust? And I said, you, you actually have to do a little bit of the legwork yourself. You have to, you have to fact check. Um, disinformation on both sides is, is, a, is a, a really scary thing that's happening in our country. Mm-hmm. And you have to make sure if you're reading the news and you're getting information that you're, you're fact checking it to see that it is accurate. Because there's a lot of small publications that have crept in the the the, you know, the vacancy you know the hole that's been left by these local papers being gone there's blogs and and other publications coming out that don't follow the same ethics and um, credibility that a that a publication should so you have to you have to find out who you can trust and 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 in the reporting it's tough it's tough i was going to suggest that and maybe and and maybe it's more of uh literally doing the legwork um that the truth is out there if you go to the diner to seek it <laughs> you know yeah you know a lot of, for me i i i i find it on my own you know and i use things like like twitter and i use it in a way that i know that the people i'm following are people that are there on the scene and in the front lines that can tell me what they see and then i can disseminate what is truth through that. And I know that having worked for major publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post, that that, you know, the stories are 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 fact-checked and there are there are with anything with a source, you have three sources corroborating a story or or, or an idea. Um, we have to understand that in all these major newspapers, like accredited newspapers, that opinion is on the editorial pages. But what you find in the pages in between the opinion section are, it, it should be truth. And that's something that like, it, it, that gray area has been smudged a little bit. You know, the, you go to, I turn on CNN and I see a platform of five people that all have different political views sharing their political views. Well, I want the news. I don't want opinion. I want the news and I want the facts. And by diluting that pool and people hearing those opinions, they don't know what is real and isn't real anymore in society when what they're getting. And it's, you know, our, our, our credibility and our ethics are the most important thing we have. And, and we've damaged them as a whole a member of the media. Justin, I want to thank you uh, for spending the time with us on the scuttlebutt. Um, I I'm really, I feel really great about this episode. There's just a lot of insights that, that came to light during this. And we went into a lot of different directions, which I wasn't sort of expecting, but I feel like as, 
uh, as an audience uh, and myself just listening, there's a lot of education in this episode uh, to dive into. Um, and I would love to you know, invite you back onto the podcast. Eventually, there's a lot of stories that I'm sure we didn't get into of just being embedded with the 101st and you know your time with the soldiers. I would love to help you through VBC find the soldier that you took the picture of with the baby. I'm sure that there's a way to do that. And I would hope that he's still around. And oddly enough, his baby is now 21 years old and in college. <laughs> How does that happen? Um, yeah. We all get a little grayer just as every day goes by. But um, it's this was a really fantastic conversation. I want to thank you just so much for being a part of it and for sharing your your images with us. I echo what Catherine said uh, before, uh, just incredible images. And I'm, I'm so happy that those stories are being told here and through these and through your, your passion for it and through your incredible talent. Um, and to our audience, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell and comment. Please send me an email at Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts that you have. Um, Justin, wish you luck in everything you're doing and, and hope to see you again on the Scuttlebutt. I want to thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown. And uh, we'll see you on the next Scuttlebutt.